Hi, my name is Paul Caroli, and I host a podcast called Changing Denver. It's a monthly show about our city's physical spaces, how we make them, and how they make us. But it's so much more than that. It's the conversations, ideas, and stories that define Denver's perpetual state of flux. Find more from our team at changingdenver.com and join the conversation on Twitter at Changing Denver. Denver's changing. We can help. You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 124. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. On this week's show, I've got Tarek Chakra. And Tarek is someone that I have known for a great number of years. Met him through my dad. My dad has used him for a variety of video services all across the years. Any number of projects he's called upon Tarek. Tarek does very, very high-quality work. His shop, Media Dynamics, has been in existence since 1991. Now, on this show, Tarek talks about how he's never had, like, a real sort of 9-to-5 job. He hasn't really worked for someone else. I mean, there's a couple of blips early on in his career, but mostly it's been Media Dynamics. And, I mean, 1991, so, I mean, that's more than 25 years in business. Anyone who can make it that long is doing something right. And I say to him, I'm like, it sounds like you've got it figured out. And the look he gives is so good. He's like, do I? I what do I have figured out? Well, I don't know. I mean, small business and entrepreneurship is about survival. And Tarek certainly has that figured out. So that is a great, great aspect of this week's episode. It's getting insight from someone who has been on his own and not only surviving, but thriving for the last 25 years. Now, the other more interesting part of this episode, I think, is all the other stuff Tarek and I talk about. Now, when I say I've worked with Tarek over a number of years, that's true. But that's not my favorite part of my relationship with him. My favorite part is any time I get to talk with him about whatever comes to mind. He's got a very thoughtful way about him. He's got good insights. He's just a terrific guy in every sense of the word. He's engaged, thoughtful, insightful, incisive. And he's just wonderful to chat with. And I'm happy that we finally got to do one of these on the record. So we talk about his interest in generations. He's done some work on millennials. We talk a little bit about that. We also talk about the fact that he immigrated here as a student in 1983 from Lebanon. Now, if you remember anything about sort of U.S. history and conflicts that we've had with various countries, you'll remember in the 80s, Lebanon was a real hot spot. And we get into that. We talk about what was happening. We talk about his view as a teenager of what was going on. We talk about his process of moving here. We talk about the evolution of culture. We touch a little bit on the now dead travel ban that was recently struck down by the courts. And I wanted to talk about this because Tarek is just such a fascinating guy, such an interesting guy, such a thoughtful guy that I didn't know exactly what his response to this was going to be. But as we talk about it, I think... You'll be interested to hear what he has to say about it. That's all coming up here on episode 124. First, let's do a little plug for our sponsor. Four Degrees has been with us since the beginning. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Zach Knaus is the founder of Four Degrees. 
and he and I quit MGA Communications on the same day. I went off to go work for the energy drink, which was not a great experience for me. He founded Four Degrees. That was nearly seven years ago now, which is crazy. Zach is his own entrepreneurial success story, and one of the reasons is there is no one better at putting together an online digital media campaign than him. He's put together great people around him, and the work that he has done speaks for itself. He's up for a number of awards. I hope he wins them all because I cannot say enough good things about Four Degrees. They have built the Deft Communications website, the John of All Trades website, and they provide us tech support. So if you're looking for a web design firm or a campaign firm or a messaging firm, they have it all under the same roof, and they are spectacular. So check them out on the web, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. All right, here we go. Episode 124 is teed up. It's ready to go. It's with Tarek Chakra, the founder and creator of Media Dynamics. Check him out on the web, mediadynamics.tv. And the episode starts right now. So this story is not so much uh, like a 10 p.m., uh, three-minute right. uh, highlight. Not, not to diminish that kind of work. That takes a lot of work right. to get it's, it done. You're not, you're not doing a Nine News storyteller. Segment. Exactly. And yeah. sometimes you need to prep the interviewees and let them know this is not a Nine News kind of cover right. story because they want to show, oh, you want to take a look at this? And I, it's all good. But sure. we're trying to get two narratives that span probably uh, you know a century and a half to try to get it right and, and, and kind of cut across – uh, and capture uh, the, the racial, the socioeconomic. Right. Well, okay. So be be more specific. What do you? What is the documentary about? Or what is this piece that you're working on? So about? the working title, because the title may may change uh, before release, uh, is Spanglish Waltz. Okay. And so it's playful. It's not sort of hard hitting politically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I could have thought of another title, and mm-hmm. I could still do that. But Spanglish, of course, is the Spanish and English, and of course, of course. this neighborhood is one of those uh, established historic neighborhoods of Denver. And and what is what is the neighborhood called technically? So uh, on the map, this is called Lincoln Park. Got but it. a few years back, as literally a couple of years ago, one of Denver's uh, city council uh, women, uh, you know, a person, uh, uh, Latina, was able to get through city council a change. So now it's called La Alma Lincoln oh. Park. Which is really nice. And La Alma, I understand, in Spanish means the soul. Okay. So you could already tell from the naming of the neighborhood and the desire to have that Spanish link to it uh, that the uh, the Hispanic character and identity is very important. Sure. And and by doing this, what are you hoping to shine a light on? Like, what is the thrust of it? What what was the impetus for it? Well, you know, so as a, as a business owner in this neighborhood, I... Uh, was introduced to an organization here called the Lincoln Park Neighborhood Association. And they were uh, criticized at some point that the name Lincoln Park did not include La Alma. So now I think it's called La Alma Lincoln Park Neighborhood Good. Association. Yeah. And uh, after attending a couple meetings, it started to sort of dawn on me that below the surface, uh, there is a bit of a, a, a tension. Well, more than a bit of tension. Okay. There's tension. And whenever there's tension, there's interest, right? As storytellers, <laughs> right. you want to try to understand what the tension is all about. Yeah, you want to root it out. You want to shine a light on it. You want exactly. To, yeah. And so me being uh, a Lebanese-American, an immigrant who came here, goodness, a long time ago, Yeah. Um, some of this resonated with me. And so I, I, that was my inquiry. My inquiry is to understand and be able to articulate 
two narratives right, about this piece of geography. Yeah. That's what the film is about. So it's not a gotcha film. Right. It's not uh, uh, <clears throat> trying to expose anything. But, well, it is. No, it is. And, and I'm sure thorny issues come up. Oh, of course. But, you know, that's in the course of discovery, right? I mean, that, that's true of any film where you ask the questions and you don't know necessarily what answers you're going to get. Is that accurate? Oh, very accurate. Definitely. Uh, uh, and, and, and trying to, you know, in this day right now, uh, presently, as we speak with the new administration, with all the talk about immigration, with all the concerns and uh, aspirations on either side of, 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 uh, of that, you know, of all sure. the issues, you, you have the economic question. I mean, you know, people telling you, you know, we've been here for decades. I mean, in fact, we can trace our history for centuries, mm -hmm. and we can no longer afford to be here. Typical gentrification story that is going right. on everywhere in the U.S. And, and especially not uncommon in Denver right now. And Denver is experiencing a lot of growth. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, what do you do with the people who are already here? I mean, I, I think of what's going on in Rhino right now. Yes. And what's going on with the I-70 redevelopment, uh, the, the people who live in Swansea. What do we do about them? And, and how do we make the city welcoming, not just for someone of a certain economic strata, but, but how do we preserve the history of Denver and the people who have been here? Absolutely. And perhaps underneath it, what fascinates me is maybe more of a poetic thing, uh, and that is I'm, I'm drawn to this notion, as, which is why are we as human beings so attached to place? And what does mm. place mean? And, and when place is challenged, with economics, which happens all the time, has been happening as long as human beings congregated into cities and all this. So this is nothing new. But this fight for place is, to me, one of the main drivers of this film. Sure. It's trying to understand it. And, it. and it's such a key component of identity. Yeah. And that's I, I suppose I haven't thought of it in those terms, but, I mean, you see that manifested in everything from native bumper stickers, Right. Where, where people say, I'm a Colorado native and I happen to be a Colorado native, but, and I find those bumper stickers appalling. You know, what are we saying? I, there's Kenneth Burke does, uh, the, the thrust of one of his main theories is identification and identification is how do you present yourself to the world and who are these groups that you're associated with? Now, the problem is ident uh, identification is compensatory to division. So by aligning yourself as, as someone or in a group, who were you there necessarily and intentionally excluding? Do you have any reaction to that? Is that? Oh no, that's that's a you know an excellent observation. Great point. Yes, by by saying it's a weird I'm way here, to getting into a question. So yeah, that's yeah. By saying I'm native, I'm here, I'm from here. Therefore, someone else is not. Yes, I think that's what you're alluding to. Yeah, is a is is a clear and uh, yeah potentially controversial uh, position. Yes, right. And something going on. I, you mentioned politically uh, that the travel ban is certainly at the forefront of our consciousness as a culture, yeah. and. Uh, by the way, before we get any further, this is Tarek Chakra from uh, Media Dynamics, and we're sitting here in your – is this your edit bay? This is the edit room. Okay. Uh, the acoustics in here are exquisite. <laughs> As uh, you identified where we were going to do this, so uh, I'd expect nothing less from someone who has the experience in media that you do. I'm listening to it in my headphones right now, and I go, this sounds great. This is like NPR. So <laughs> well played, sir. All right. Um, 
Media Dynamics been in existence for how long? It's been a while, really. Officially, the bank account and the registration with the Secretary of State, I think, occurred in 1991. 91? Yes. Wow. And you, you mentioned you are a Lebanese immigrant. I am. And when did you come to the United States? I came here in 83. Okay, 83. Uh, and, I mean, Lebanon uh, at the time was sort of the political hotspot of the day. It was. It uh, was. Especially as it relates to American foreign foreign policy. Absolutely. You're right. In fact, I left Beirut in August of 83. And uh, I think it was only a couple months after that when the Marines were hit. Oh, my. Because the Marines were in Beirut. It was such, to many younger Lebanese at the time, college uh, students yeah. uh, attending uh, American uh, institutions. That's where I was working on my bachelor's degree. Right. At at the time, it was called the Beirut University College. It was a, a an American college. Uh-huh. My professors, half of them were U.S. professors, I mean, Americans, who were just enjoying being in the you know, in Beirut and all of this. So that was sort of my experience starting with uh, the American educational system, I guess, abroad. And, um, yeah, I left in August and literally, I think it was October sometime or maybe November when the Marines were hit by Hezbollah at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't yeah. recall the casualties and all this. And before that, uh, the U.S. Embassy was hit. Mm-hmm. So that was obviously, I think, uh, events were sort of beginning to to show up where, geopolitically speaking, I think Iran was trying to say something to the right, United yeah. States. And so that's when I left Beirut. And of course, as you say, I was a teenager when the Lebanese Civil War uh, started. Okay. And as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, something like this, when, uh, when, when this whole thing uh, exploded... Um, you know, as a teenager, you don't understand sometimes events like this. It, it may take 10 years before you can assimilate it, digest it, and really know what happened in time. Yeah, and contextualize it properly. Uh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, I mean, silly as it sounds, I mean, for us, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds at the time, it was like, oh, great, there's no school, you know? It's like, <laughs> you know, we know where the trouble spots are, no school, we're gonna, it's going to be fun. But really, obviously, it wasn't Boy, the fun. silver lining of war, right? <laughs> That's right. There's always something, yeah. <laughs> But clearly that war, uh, many books have been have been written about it. Many films have been produced about it. And uh, at times I try to sort of synthesize it and, 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 and like if you were to ask me to, to pitch it to you, I said, what was the Lebanese war all about? Yeah. It's very difficult to really do that because it was so confusing and so many uh, events happened and so many parties sure. changed affiliations and was it local, was it regional, was it global? All of that, but it was a very messy location. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the long, you know. So yes, I was very happy that my parents were supportive enough and saw the need to get me out of there physically. Mm. And so that was the impetus for you to immigrate. Yes, because obviously I was working on my BA in they called it then mass communication or telecommunication. <laughs> right. I was doing TV, film, and radio, and and that campus was beautiful and they had uh, nice facilities as well so i was happy being there yeah but then with all the events on the streets and and all of this my parents really my dad said you know we want you to start sort of uh, thinking to leave here wow i'm I'm not we're not comfortable because you know i guess young people are more potentially uh able to get themselves in trouble perhaps that was the thinking on their part 
And Beirut was so messy and, and uh, unpredictable. Anyway, so yes, I, in a hurry, I was able to arrange for a placement here uh-huh. in the U.S., and I ended up in Arizona. Was it refugee status or anything Oh, no, like not that? at all. That no, was okay. the proper channel. I, mean, I applied as a foreign student. Okay, I got gotcha. you. And I got what is called the I-20 uh, visa, which okay. is, I think, a foreign student visa. I don't know what it is right now. Yeah, okay. So, no, it was not refugee. In fact, we were expected to pay foreign student fees and everything. Oh, gotcha. So uh came here really as a foreign student. Uh, did your so parents remain behind? Oh, Yes. Okay. They chose to. And did they did they remain there in perpetuity? Are they? They yeah, they did. Wow, they did. Yeah, for some reason, my mom would have loved to have you know to to visit, but uh, my father wasn't much of a traveler. I mean, he was. Hmm. I loved. Him. He was a great father, but he was not a traveler. Interesting. Yeah. And the U.S. seemed way, way too far away. Right. I mean, that yeah. may as well be Mars, right? Yeah. So interesting. I didn't want to deal with that. How was the adjustment for you coming to the U.S.? Well, it was gradual. And again, I, from my perspective, it's amazing how uh, every now and then you look back and say, well, I thought I was finished acculturating, but I guess uh-huh. the process is still ongoing. Really? You know, you, you, keep, you keep on learning more, feeling more in sync. I guess some aspects will never go away, accent included, mm-hmm. you know, because I didn't grow up here. Uh, what's interesting, uh, also here and there, my wife, who is a Colorado native, by the way. If, if, oh, if, cool. All right. <laughs> if that counts. You know, she's one of those, you know. Uh, uh, Don't worry, Tarek. You're not being graded. Yeah. This, is, yeah. <laughs> this isn't a test. But every now and then she will mention maybe a TV show or, or something. Sure. Or she will say words, oddly enough. And here I think... I'm fairly comfortable. Right. It's 30-some-odd years later. And I say, what's that? Or who's this? (laughs) And and so that tells me that that critical 21-year formative phase of my life, I wasn't here for that. So I'm still absorbing and adopting and and, and doing all that. Wow. Yeah. When you you came to the U.S. and you said you ended up in Arizona, given that geopolitically Lebanon and the United States were – we're in a contentious place. Did you face any heat from fellow students? Did you face any discrimination, any threats, anything like that? Not really. You know what I've noticed is that, well, that was so the early 80s. Clearly, with the introduction and maturation of the Internet, that I think the way we receive information has has changed and has grown in ways that I think uh, certainly was not the case back then. I mean, back then, if you wanted to know about foreign policy and, and foreign affairs, you, you had to read newspapers, you had to right. wait for your weekly magazine and maybe watch the nightly news. And there were probably, what, three, four yeah. reasonable choices yeah, at the time. You'd watch what, Dan Rather or exactly Peter Jennings or... Who, One of those. Right. Yeah. So to me, it seemed, and I recall... Of course, with my wife again and other friends, sort of mildly observing and complaining about the fact that uh, uh, many of the Americans I, 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 I talked with or spoke to and, and hung out with were very nice people, but were unaware mm. of the outside. So no, at that time, I didn't. When I felt interesting, a little uncomfortable because of misunderstandings uh, is when the first Iraq war took place. In the early 90s? Early 90s. Okay. Because I started hearing about, uh, of course, like some Sikh members 
uh-huh. were hit or killed. And I thought, okay, now that that's a totally different sort of portrayal. But right. that may get me f- feeling a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Because people may not understand the nuances. Right. Because, you know, again, you know, I, I've always uh, thought that by and large, and this is such a, a generalization, it's, but th- that the Middle East is kind of lumped as one huge right. trouble spot. Right, yeah. It's it's basically, it's a monolith in a lot of people's minds. Yes, and, and, and to understand the differences between uh, the boundaries and to also understand that they're not all Muslim for that matter. Not that there's anything wrong with being Muslim, sure. but this is not just all... Muslim of one faith, of one again, way of right. – yeah. Again, so, it's not a monolith. It's not. It's not a monolith uh, geographically or politically or of religiously yeah. or uh, socioculturally. Right. Right. Yes. I follow it's, you. It's, it's rather diverse. It's yeah. complex. Yes. Right. And Lebanon more so, I think. It's, it's kind of a pronounced uh, case. Interesting. And I, I don't want to spend our entire time talking politics, but given that – Given the cultural conversation right now, uh, I thought this would be of interest and of value given that you experienced this firsthand, yes. uh, particularly coming out of the Middle East. Yeah. So given the rhetoric of what you hear today, you know, what is your reaction as an immigrant from the Middle East? About the ban, for instance? Uh, yeah, about the travel ban. Travel ban, yes. Well, you know, what's, what's sort of interesting about this whole thing is that and and trying to tackle it not as a wannabe attorney here, not the legalities right. of it. It sounds like that it's potentially in conflict with the Constitution, all this. That's right. a whole conversation. And the Court of Appeals has upheld that, that the ban is not right. legal. Right. Right. But if you come at it from a couple of different positions, one from the inside looking out, mm-hmm. trying to protect the mainland, you know, the homeland. Right. You know, if you were to look at the Middle East as a troubled spot, on almost an instinctive level, I can sort of – understand the the general direction in that. Mm-hmm. That is to say, it's such a troubled area. We don't know. Well, I guess uh, uh, there are many potential uh, 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 trouble spots there and potentially, you know, potential bad players. We have no way of accounting for everything. Therefore, a protective position would be to say, for a while, let's keep everyone out. Until we figure it out, that's kind of the the the, the, the pitch, and and that's uh, I mean that's assuming purity of intent as well. Exactly, exactly. But on face value, some of that could be presented in a way that it could be palatable. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I follow you. But I think obviously the presentation wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's fair, right. and uh, you you have a knack for understatement. Yeah, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> right. So now. Me as a potential, you know, as an immigrant, uh, uh, naturalized citizen who intends to to spend the rest of his life here, yeah, it's potentially uh, discomforting mm-hmm. uh, to be witnessing all this because you have to ask, you have to question whether this is just the beginning of a new process of looking right. at that region. Right? Is this just the tip of the spear here? Exactly. Yeah, I follow you. So that's that's sort of some of my thinking about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, and I and I appreciate you sharing uh, the thoughts on it. So, okay, 
you came here in 83. Yes. Media Dynamics has been in existence since 1991. Yes. You told me we were we were working on a project a couple of weeks ago, and you said you've never had a real job before. Right? Is that fair to say? <laughs> well, yeah, that's sort of true. I mean – Yeah, no, that's, that's – and, really, yeah. and that's not to say that, that you don't do a lot of work. I mean I know what it's like to own your own business, and we're yes. going to get into that. Yeah. But – you know, as far as working for someone else, going in, doing nine to five, right? That pretty much has not been your existence. Really, it has not. Uh, the only thing that's close, remarkable, Tarek. The only thing close to it is, as, a, as I was finishing my thesis, I was offered a teaching assistant honorarium position with the University of Colorado. Right. So I guess that was a W two sort of earning position. Sort of. Yes, but still, it was rather flexible because I had to show up like twice, three times, <laughs> right? Um, you know, and, and then your time and, is your own, and then my time is my own. So really, yeah, it it sort of never happened. Uh, I interned with uh, it was then Channel Nine was uh, NBC. I forget ABC. I think. It was ABC at the time, and they all right. switched like late eighties, early nineties. Right. That was weird. As a it, kid, I remember going, "What is happening?" That's right. So. So I did that sort of formal uh, experience, I guess, with an established sort of media outlet, and then PBS after that. But it's been, yeah, it's been on my own. <laughs> I guess I've never had a real job. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about it that way because I'll tell you why I say this. Clearly, I, you know, I have colleagues and friends in the business, and we all talk and all of that. And um, the word work. Right. Are you working today? <laughs> is code language in the private, in the uh, freelance or independent space? Like if you're a full timer, right? You work, you show up, and you're working. Yeah. Right? Whether you're working or not is a whole different question. But you show up and you're in <laughs> in that mode. But if you're independent, your working means are you generating money for right. a client? Are you doing something billable? Right. right. But see, really, and this is not being sort of. Uh, uh, crafty about it. But I was asked this a little while ago and I said, you know, I work every day. Every day. Yep. And so some of it is billable. <laughs> but all, uh, and some, not a lot. Some of it is billable. Some of it is not. Some of it is strategic. Some of it is about growth. Some of it is about marketing. Some of it's administrative. Administrative. You have to. So I thought it interesting that, are you working today? It's like, what are you, what are you really trying to ask me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is at the root of that question? Right. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. No, that's uh, – I, I think that's a question we all grapple with. And when I was interviewed in the DBJ a couple of months ago, they said, what keeps you up at night? And my, my answer to that is, did I do enough today? And when you work for yourself, that's a question that plagues you right. no matter what day it is. You're, you're thinking the, – the funny thing about working for yourself is – and I know you don't have a, a real strong basis for comparison here because you've been at it on your own for so long. But for me, being relatively fresh out of corporate, I don't miss anything about that. The only thing I sort of get a little bit wistful about is there were times where I could sit at my desk and kind of look out the window – and just ponder life, you know, and think about things. I don't have as much time to do that as I might like now because I feel like I need to be running and gunning all the time. And so are you working today? I may not be actually physically doing the task, but you can bet I'm thinking about it. Sure. I mean, is that the case for absolutely. you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well put. Yeah. And you're right. I can't relate to that full time because I haven't had it really. But, you know, even within that independent mode, uh, you evolve and you hopefully you become better because sure. you learn a lot more. 
And hopefully you become better at uh, quickly reading a situation, reading a scenario, looking at calendaring, looking at timelines. I'm I'm a big fan of timelining everything. Well, sure. I mean, you've got the Avid system right here. Right. Everything is timelines, right? Everything is timeline. And, and, and then how to become more efficient and therefore more productive mm-hmm. when you are tackling things over time. And this is where it becomes fun. In right. a way, it becomes really fun because then you're able to create that critical sort of, uh, um, what do you call this? Um, uh, Are you talking about like critical mass? Well, not only critical mass, but also enough variation. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that you are orchestrating many events that hopefully don't clash a lot. Yeah, sure. While, you know, and, and, and the thing is, when you're independent, you're not in charge. Well, you know, you're always sort of hoping that you will be at the right place, right, at the right time. <laughs> right. To get that contract, to get that relationship going. One thing I do, and I've done a lot, and hopefully I've been somewhat successful in that, in being able to establish strategic relationships. Yeah. Which is kind of different, you know. That's uh, a different side of your business. Right. Because as this is something I'm always fascinated by. What you go to school for yes. is not typically what you end up spending most of your time doing. Right. You know, so establishing critical strategic relationships is vital for your business's success and for its survival. Yeah. Yet your trained proficiency, your trained vocation yeah. is probably in shooting and editing. Is that yeah. fair to say? You know, yeah. I mean, I, I like it all. Yeah, 100%. But that's not something they train you for necessarily. Right. Like as you're getting your education, there are no classes in how to network. There are no classes in how oh, to build absolutely. a relationship. Absolutely. How to how to fundamentally and it's it's almost like an intangible thing like who do i need to talk to yes. who may not even end up paying me a dime ever yes but how will that relationship absolutely ultimately lead to the survival of my business yeah that's not taught that's a fascinating process that's too that's not taught and it's different for everyone right no you're right that's not really taught uh, and and then you know i recall i mean this cliche sounding thing you know it's it's a people business and that's right. really what it is that's every business though every business is a people business even if you're an employee it's a people business right. and you have to take care of that but that's that's definitely the case i guess again to, to answer your question about you know having been at it for a little while there's also a qualitative sort of transitioning that takes place and that is as a model, being a business, are you responsive, mm-hmm. which you have to be, mm-hmm. when a client says, this is what we want to do, we trust you enough to work with you, and here's a list, mm-hmm. hopefully you deliver on that list, and hopefully you exceed expectations. Sure. That's a given. But then there's another deeper transition, and that is, how can I, and this is sounding cliche, but how can I add value? <laughs> add value. Right. If we want to stick to this, because it's easy to understand. Do you have a PowerPoint that goes with that? <laughs> Probably somewhere. You can deliver it in a hotel ballroom somewhere. Right. <laughs> but really, don't you think that, I mean, it becomes more of an undeclared partnership, whereby it's more than just showing up for the shoot or delivering the edit. Yeah. It's being able to point politely and and, and persuasively that, Maybe we could also do this because we could see this. Mm-hmm. And I have the street perspective that may be helpful some of the time. Right. Yeah. And and it's I found it's almost never about the work that you're doing. It's about how can I do how can we do additional work together? Right. You know, it because I've already got this project. Right. And so I need to deliver on this project. This project is important and the most important thing for me right now. But also how 
do I ensure that if you want to do a project again, that you call me? Or how can I help you identify a new project? I mean, that's a shift in thinking where if if you're starting out as an entrepreneur, you tend to focus pretty myopically mm-hmm. on the client work, on the work that's in front of you, instead of raising your head up and going, okay, wait a minute, this is only a smaller, a small piece of what I'm doing. Absolutely. Interesting stuff. Yes. Okay. So you found Media Dynamics in, in 1991. And what was it? Um, because I, when I talk to entrepreneurs and people who have started their own business, there's either a naivete or an arrogance that believes like that, that comes from within that makes you believe you can go out on your own and be successful. What led you to go, okay, I think I can try this on my own. And what did your business look like then compared to how it looks now? Oh, different. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So started out from my house. Uh, in fact, yeah, it was few, uh, few, uh, uh, attempts at sort of doing the office thing. Uh, and then really to, uh, to pour the foundation, so to speak which I needed to do, yeah. uh, which, so just to kind of uh, place it in time, uh, as you know, right now, uh, video, audio, uh, acquisition and, uh, and dissemination technology has matured to the point you could do so much with, uh, iPhones and smartphones, <laughs> right. really and acceptable results that could be even, uh, projected on, onto theater screens, which is amazing. And they use that as part of their marketing. Right. So, so we know that that was uh, uh, that was a demarcation line right. when I started. That was a barrier to entry. Absolutely. Yeah. When I started, really to outfit a room that could deliver those dazzling professional results, you needed some serious money. We're talking half a million dollars or more <laughs> to get there. Even for me, and I was a very, very small peripheral player, so to speak, at that point. Was it called Media Dynamics back then, too? Yes, it was. Wow. The inception was, yeah. And in fact, it started out as a very short-lived, very short-lived attempt at partnership. Okay. <laughs> and, very short-lived. Yeah. And then it was amicable, but it's just like it was not going to work. And then I ran with it. Yeah, okay. That's, that's how, how it started. I got gotcha. you. But then I needed to move to my house and had my basement operation. Uh-huh. Uh, because again, you want to try and be very, uh, uh, sort of, con- you know, careful about how you spend your money. Mm-hmm. And I recall I took a small loan, family, oh, okay. very friendly okay. uh, terms, but nevertheless, I paid it all back with interest. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. I like to think about that time. Yeah. I bought, I borrowed a little less than 20 grand at the time. Wow. For me at that time, that was serious money. <laughs> no kidding. Because I had to buy a professional caliber camera. I was not going to be taken seriously if I had to rent my camera every time I was called. Yeah. And I needed enough of an editing situation to, to be able to deliver that. That's how you start. But you asked me about what made me, I guess I would say being extremely naive. <laughs> uh, maybe that's what it was. I, you know, I'm, I don't think of myself as arrogant in that sense. Right. But maybe maybe the word behind arrogant is a sense of confidence. Sure. Maybe I'm an optimist. My wife thinks I'm an optimist. And I like being an optimist. Sure. So maybe you take optim- an optimist sort of uh, point of view or an optimistic point of view, combine it with being naive and believing in the, the American thing. And this is, you know, this is a serious thing that, you know, here, if you work hard, we, we all believe this. As a newcomer, I believe this. Right. Now, granted, we know the playing field is not always even, it's not right. always balanced. At 100%. Right. And we know there are many other tr- 
challenges thrown into that big thing space. But nevertheless, I still, I guess, like many newcomers like me, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll just do it. I'll just do it, <laughs> you know. And uh, and fortunately, I have to credit my wife again, not to be just <laughs> right <laughs> nice about it. It takes a partner who says, well, fine. You know, I have a study job. She, she, you know, she's she's an architect. Yeah, and I guess she felt she could at least provide enough stability, right? Where giving me the the space uh, to try and to give it a shot. Yeah, wow. Spread my wings, and uh, I guess it it sort of happened after after twenty five years looking back. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> given given that you're still in existence and thriving, and this is a gorgeous space that you have. With a Thank lot, you. absolutely. With a lot of really, almost it for someone who's not in the industry, impenetrable looking equipment. You know, <laughs> you, you look at it and you go, "What is all this?" Yeah. Because you know, my understanding, I took a video editing course in yeah. college, and we just had Final Cut Pro right. on on an Apple on an Apple machine. You know, we have a computer, we have Final Cut Pro. They they rented us a camera. We went out and shot with it, yes. and uh, we had to put together a silent film and a music video. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, coming in here, I go, okay, yeah, this is this is serious. This is major leagues. So, as you got started, I'm curious, like, what types of folks were hiring you? Like, what kind of business did you seek? So, you know, really, uh, sometimes I guess it took a, a, a happy situation or a lucky uh, meeting or introduction. For me, the real project that I received a paycheck for. It wasn't a big paycheck, but at the time I was so thankful. The first paycheck I, I felt is huge. Respected, honored, recognized—you name it. It's like wow. <laughs> Someone's paying me for yes, work. Yes, <laughs> yes. It was an engagement for Historic Denver Inc. Okay, nice. All right. So, and I was introduced to then the president of Historic Denver, uh, Jennifer Moulton, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But mm. she was an architect, knew my wife because my wife was just interning or beginning at that firm. And it was one of those, as we said, it's a people business. Yeah, it's serendipity. Serendipity. You know, Elizabeth said, oh, Tarek is finishing his thesis. He wants to start his own business. He would like, and Jennifer called me one day and said, we want to honor then Mayor Federico Pena. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's moving on and we want to do a little kind of recognition piece for him. Are you interested? Are you kidding? Of course I'm interested. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I'll do anything. And and you're paying (laughs) real money? You'll pay some money for this? I'll do it without paying, you know? So (laughs) that was the first job. And then I suppose, I guess now it's difficult to kind of, you know, it must have led to other introductions. Right. Do you remember what you made on that job? $2,000. $2,000. Two thousand dollars. Two thousand. Two grand. All right. Yeah, it was a two thousand dollar job for a lengthy piece. I mean, at the time, it was considered, you know, a. Um, I think Jennifer told me consider this a thank you, you know, a gift to you. Don't even. We just wanted to say thank you. I said, okay. well, yeah, you really said it beautifully. <laughs> right. How uh, how long a piece? We probably did um, um, a ten twelve minute piece. Wow. Yeah, that is a lengthy piece. Lengthy piece. So yes, you know, at the time. Yeah, so a lot of spade work involved in that, too. Right. At the time, I was beginning to understand from professionals, seniors around, you know, like, you know, the, the, we quoted it by the finished minute. Right. Uh, at the time, the finished minute price was, uh, you know, 500 to 1,000 a finished minute. Oh, so geez. in that sense, that was a deal. <laughs> but for me, it was a fabulous uh, uh, starter event. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, she got she got quite a deal. But you know what? It's – and. This is something that annoys me. It, 
it's fine if you have less experience and you, you want something on your resume yeah. and you'll typically take less money for that just to get the work. I feel like culturally that's almost eroded now. And I, I don't mean to bridge this into you were interested in doing some work with millennials uh, yes. a few years ago, yes. but so much of the bitterness of the millennial generation comes from getting paid in either experience or exposure and no real money. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I feel like the deal that you got was, was good for you at the time, but now it's like, well, we're not going to pay you, but your work is going to be seen by X number of people. And it's like, okay, that's great. But exposure doesn't pay my rent either. Right. And so that system I feel like has eroded too much in favor of the people who actually have the money. And yes, so for instance, from I can speak right now a little bit. Uh, you're right. Uh, I've always been interested in generational topics. Yeah. And uh, with Claire Rains, who's a published author and a professional in this field and uh, was a client of mine as well, we uh, did a couple of productions on, on, the, on those topics. Now, millennials remain a very interesting generation. I mm -hmm. think they're still talked about a lot. <laughs> and millennials much. will be running corporations, will be running the show. They are starting to, and they will continue to do so for the next perhaps 15, 20 years. Right. I mean, I was born in 81. I'm at the very tip of what's yes. considered millennial. Yes, absolutely. So, so they're here to stay and, and run the show eventually. But having said that, you make a good point about, because now my son, He's a barely a millennial. Oh, he's on the other end. He's young, young, young. You know, he's so uh, I'm on he, the front end. Yeah, he's on the back end. He's tw 21. Okay, nice. Yeah, so he is beginning to enter those same waters. He's saying, "Well, you know, I want to get a job," mm -hmm. and there are internships that don't pay, and some that do pay. Yep. And I think that what you pointed out is certainly I, so. I can relate to it through his perspective. And as an employer who has hired millennials, okay, interesting. Uh, you know, in capacities like three D modeling and and all of that kind of things. So yeah, I think the pay is always up there, uh, as it should be. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I agree with you. I think I think um, that's a challenge for this generation. And as we move to the gig economy, mm. that 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 right. is also kind of disturbing a lot of the, the, the sort of the structural aspects of the model as well. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. I think the gig economy though is almost a necessary reaction to the erosion of a lot of traditional avenues yes. to, you know, being fully self-sufficient, you know, whereas before, you know, someone could go and, and get a job and get one job and be secure in that there's so much uncertainty in the working environment right now that has not been settled and doesn't look to be settled that everyone's, I mean, you hear the term side hustle all the time. Everyone's got a side hustle. Everyone's got a side gig. Everyone's pursuing something to either supplement or in pursuit of a dream where something else is, is taking care of the, the essentials of life. Yes. And it's, it's an interesting cultural moment. And it's funny because a lot of the blame for it gets heaped onto millennials themselves. And millennials, I, I think, are starting to react and say, look, we didn't create this environment. We're just doing our best to survive it. Of course. And the criticism of the younger generation is as old as Plato. Yeah. I mean, he, he crapped on Aristotle's generation. He thought they were lazy and, you know, they didn't like to work and they were going to end society. Well, that didn't happen. You heard that with baby boomers. Baby boomers were supposed to end the world. Right. Right. 
And now you hear it with millennials. And I think I personally am a little bit over kind of all of it mm-hmm. because it's like not let's not cast blame. Let's how are we creating the world together? Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm not sure. I, I, I wouldn't say it would be fair to blame the generation for any of this. I think if anything, and politicians are just beginning, I think, to recognize that we have to talk about uh, technology as the major threat. <laughs> I mean, it's really technology that is rendering so many careers and segments of the economy obsolete. I mean, that's right. what it is. I mean, when you can run, when you can run a factory with uh, ten employees and a hundred robots, I mean, why would you hire two thousand people? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know why you would do that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's just it's a larger cultural conversation, and it's something that if I start thinking about too hard, I think blood shoots out my nose. But our economy is based on a very outmoded economic model where you could show up to work from nine to five, do sort of almost a rote task, get paid for it, and then, you know, go live your life. Well, what you just described is eroding that model. So it's like, how do we reinvent our economy? Because labor in exchange for rate or for a rate of pay is not, uh, it's not going to be sustainable for much longer when robots are doing almost everything for us. Yes. It's fascinating and it very challenging. It is. And I think the outcome of this election sort of related to that very point is that <laughs> you know, many people are hoping the old jobs will come back. And I think that's a major question mark. I personally think their hope might be misplaced. Yeah. That's, that's a personal feeling. Yeah. But uh, I certainly – my heart goes out to them yeah. um, because – I don't know that anyone has the right answer right now. They certainly think their preferred candidate did. My suspicion is they're going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. I don't know that for sure, but that's my general feeling. A similar, somewhat related point to that is you mentioned this a little bit. When an iPhone can do so much, yes. why would someone hire you that's going to be costly, that's going to you know have more overhead? How do you differentiate yourself from a society that has very low barriers to entry to create uh, finished video products? Absolutely. Excellent question. (laughs) And going back to what keeps you up at night, (laughs) that's certainly one of... I'll bet that's one of them, yeah. In fact, you know what's interesting is that uh, we all, in many ways, have been thinking about this for a little while, Mm -hmm. even before the iPhone. I recall thinking about the one-man island approach view that, and that was before even iPhone, Hmm. that you could do so much. Uh, I recall having an interesting chat with a friend of mine, and he talked about why do we need such elaborate professional spaces to deliver that kind of quality output, you know, when right now you can go to like an Office Max or any kind of office uh, supply, and you can buy one machine that can fax, scan, phone, uh, and probably three other things that I haven't named yet. They can do it all. Right. And he he said something I thought was nice in that uh, he said, yes, this machine can do it all, but... Uh, uh, you can't do all of them at once. It has to do them. Um, you know, if you want to scan, you can scan this, and right. maybe with limited. And then you want to place uh, whatever, something else you want to copy. Okay, now after you finish scanning, you can copy. What if you have the type of project that requires scanning, copying, calling, and doing other more complex things at once? It's 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 a camp, it's it's an effort on multiple fronts. Right. He said that's when you need professional. Capabilities to take it. Those machines, not, and again, I'm not just pinning it all on that machine, but it's a, it's kind of an interesting way of looking at things. iPhones are fabulous. Um, I, I love my iPhone, like all of us, and or smartphone for that matter. And they can do so, so, so many things. It's amazing. 
But will I let go of my Avid 4K system for my iPhone? <laughs> never. <laughs> like, never. That, that do you would... want me to go into details as to why I wouldn't do that? <laughs> I'm happy to. I, I, don't, I don't think I need to. I, I suspect that. It, the, the point that you're making is interesting to me because it's, it's almost like when there's an in-house communications team like there was in my corporate job. Yeah. They're like, why do you guys need agencies? Like, why would, you, why would you hire an outside agency? It's like, do you realize how much you're asking me to do? Like, I, I need to outsource some of this to someone who specializes in this. Right. We're going to pay handsomely for this. Yes. But do you want it done right? I mean, we are a corporation that needs to be professional. Like, you cannot just ramshackle this thing together with, with a bunch of duct tape. You need a professional campaign manager. Right. And so what you're describing is if you are someone who uh, – if you are a brand or a company or something, you need it done to a certain quality level that exceeds that by which your average sort of iPhone user can can deliver. Sure. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. You know, and, and again, to play both sides, not to just be diplomatic. At the same time, I'm not – I don't hold the position that the piece of equipment necessarily says everything or anything for that matter. Meaning, if you were to take someone of modest talent and give them a, a gold-plated Steinway <laughs> – and then you get someone of the caliber of Mozart, and mm. and and you give them an out of tune, uh, upright that's been neglected for fifty years. Who's going to come up with a better music? <laughs> <laughs> so that's my point. I'm not all about bells and whistles, but I really think I try to remain somewhat rational about it. That if you want to deliver at a certain level, you do need power to do it because there comes a point that smaller systems will just say sayonara. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I can't do it. I yeah. just can't do it. I, I, I don't have the capability. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's got to nag at the core of your day-to-day -day understanding of your business. Trying, definitely. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, given that, and again, I come back to this point, 26 years, 25 years, whatever it is, yeah. you seem to have figured it out. Well, thank you for saying that. Well, and I mean, it's <laughs> it's funny. It's radio, not television. The face you just made is like, have I figured it out? <laughs> you know, I would say given given the balance of history, it would be fair to say that you have to a certain extent. Now, that's not to say that the questions that you answer now are the same that, you, that you've already solved in the past. They keep changing. They keep evolving. And it never gets any easier. Right. And I'm sure, you know, another cliche term, but I do think it's, it's a good one. And that is relevance. I think we are all striving to remain relevant. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's another sort of guiding uh, idea or guiding, uh, you know, goal, I guess, in that I ask myself all the time, how can I remain relevant? Mm -hmm. And how does that translate into, I don't know, uh, services I may provide or in ways I can be I can be helpful. And I think relevance is, is, is critical because you, you set up very in, good point, solid point, and that is uh, people expect to pay less for service right now. <laughs> right. And you know another thing we didn't talk about, but we can just touch upon, and that is this whole thing that video is so abundant. Yeah. Almost everything's video now. Everything is video. There you go. And, and again, not to be sim simplistic about it, because of its abundance – Maybe, and just maybe, sometimes people make a, a, a sort of a lazy leap into thinking, well, it's all over the place. It shouldn't cost that much. I mean, sort of thing. And right. it, I, can, I can do it here. But really, to create it, 
in a manner that is solid and inspired, hopefully, and has shelf life, it's not easy. Yeah, no. Pen and pencil, pen and paper have been in the repertoire of civilized human society for millennia. Uh-huh. Doesn't mean you can grab them and be a good writer. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, that's that's the entire argument. And sometimes you have to argue for that. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Couple of a uh, couple of brief questions as as we look to wrap up here. Sure. Uh, or one of my favorite questions to ask is, what is your favorite thing to do? in regard to your job. And I'll I'll give you an example. When I get to interview people for this show, that's my favorite part. But that's a small fraction of what I do with regard to this show, whether I'm writing the blog post or I'm, you know, cleaning up the episode or I'm editing a photo or I'm pushing it out or I'm booking guests. Like there's a lot of things that I have to do to get to the thing that I like to do most, right? In terms of what you do, what is the thing you like to do most? Again, um, I will give you a one thing, but really it's, it seems like I'm one of those people in this field that I'm not unique in any way, but I like the filming aspect a lot. I like that creating nice imagery, motion, motion imagery. The, the shooting? The shooting itself can be wonderful, uh, a wonderful experience in itself. But probably the override, I mean, the, 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 what I enjoy doing the most is feeling that I have been able to successfully capture that idea and, and be able to say I have produced that piece of content, which is relies on some mechanics, but it's more of, a, of an envelope kind of thing. Mm. Truly, I'm not trying to evade the question. I, I, if you were to ask me at the end, of, if you want to spend three days in succession, would you rather be with the camera or, or cutting here? I probably would say probably I want to be writing with my avid. Oh, okay. Because I because you know in in film they say editing is the final rewrite. Right. Yeah, a, a film is written 3 times, right? Yes. Once when it's written, once when it's shot, once yes. when it's edited, right? Edited. Yeah. And this one is the the pre-delivery step. Yeah. And so I love it. Okay. I, the power that comes with it, power not just for like book, <laughs> but I mean the power of expression that comes with it and the near endless possibilities that you have at your disposal. It probably would drive me the most. If Interesting. Yeah. If I lose my ability somehow to to grab a camera and shoot, I'm happy just final rewriting here. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Okay. The other thing I want to t- I want to tell you before we do plugs is you feature sort of obliquely in the origin story of this podcast. And I'll tell you how. When I was working the corporate job, I hired you to come do some shooting and you uh, you brought a freelance sound guy with you. And the sound guy, we were riding around in the car. We were going between setups. And I asked him, what's his next gig? And he said, uh, the Broncos are on Monday Night Football, so I'm going to go do... I'm going to go hold the mic for NFL network. And I go, okay, so what's that like? And he said, you know, we stand on the sidelines. Then we rush out on the field and get interviews. Then I go in the locker room and I go, how many times have you been in the Broncos locker room? Cause this is a regular gig for you. Right. And he goes, yeah, fairly standard. Um, and he goes probably two dozen times. And I said, do you know how mind blowing that is for most people that you've just been in the Broncos locker room and you are totally nonplussed by it. And I thought, these are the stories that I need to tell on my podcast. These are the types of people who have jobs that are interesting in some way or another to the general public, yet the general public knows nothing about them. I want to talk to someone who has something glamorous about their job and is totally bored by it. 
You know what I mean? Sure. Because, I mean, sure. that's that's a very cool thing. People go nuts for the Broncos in this town. And the idea that someone gets to go in the locker room as part of their job, that would make someone's face melt clean off. Right? I mean, so it, it was that moment where I go, okay, I know what this show needs to be now. And so I need to talk to as many different types of people as I can. So... That's really cool. I thought you'd be amused by that. Oh, yeah. That's, that's really great. <laughs> yeah. That's really great. And uh, you've been on my list for some time. I'm glad we finally got to – Well, thank you. This, is, this has been uh, fun. I, this is – I love this so much. So now's the time of the show when we do plugs. Where can we find you? Media Dynamics. Plug anything on the web. Plug anything you want. Okay. So, yeah, obviously Media Dynamics. It's uh, MediaDynamics.tv. And, uh, of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, I like that. So one last thing about Media Dynamics has been, will remain a professional uh, creative services operation. The term boutique has been used at some point. It's been overused, some people think. <laughs> but I, I say that because it is small in the sense that, you know, we don't have 700 people here and, and, and lots and everything. But we do have – it's a brick-and-mortar operation that plays very well in the cloud space. And that's that's the dance we like to maintain in that we do have the brick and mortar. If you need the sound booth, if you need the solid editing, if you need the network, if you need everything that goes into producing professionally, it's right here. Nice. We don't have to hesitate and scramble to come up with it. At the same time, we're fully aware that the space, that media right now is about uh, being everywhere. Right. And, and, and that's also part accessible of everywhere. Accessible everywhere and being very nimble that way. So one last thing, if I may, and that is the uh, sort of creative approach about running business, and that's about me. And that is getting to a place maybe – where I am in age, where I am in my in my profession, is that now not only enjoying being of service as a professional, but also taking the time and being beginning to comment on the world around me from that me from that position, and and allow, giving myself permission, so to speak, creatively, to write film, to produce, without competing with the other component. That's where I am right now. That's awesome, Tarek. Well, I'll tell you what, this was enormously entertaining, a lot of fun. I cannot wait to see how you use that voice and how you deploy it, and I wish you continued success. Well, thank you. And it's time to cut and put this episode in the can. Episode 124 is complete. Tarek Chakra, one of my favorite people to talk to. I could talk to him all day about any number of things, and I hope you enjoy sitting there with us. And uh, I don't know if you're sitting, maybe you're standing, maybe you're running, maybe you're walking your dog. Wherever you are, I hope you enjoyed the conversation between me and Tarek. Tarek's company is on the web, MediaDynamics.tv. John of All Trades website, also on the web, J-O-N of All Trades.us. We are a production of Deft Communications. We keep doing web plugs, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. And as long as we're on the web, let's skip around. Let's go to all the social media sites where you can find John of All Trades. At J-O-A-T-Pod is Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest. Go to those sites. Type in J-O-A-T-Pod. You should find us there. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Those are all great ways of supporting the John of All Trades podcast. I'll give you a big sloppy kiss if you write me a review. That's my John of All Trades guarantee. Guarantee not valid in any of the 50 states. Episode previews are exclusive to Facebook. So again, facebook.com slash J-O-A-T-Pod. Those go up on Monday. New episodes go up on Wednesday. So we'll be back here next week. Got a fresh one coming for you. And on that note, say goodnight, Gracie.
That's good, Johnny. 